Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Teachers' unions are undoubtedly a potent force in American education and in American politics. But questions about what teachers' unions do and why are so politicized that the answers you get frequently say more about who is answering the question than about teachers' unions themselves. In a new book, How Policies Make Interest Groups, Government, Unions, and American Education, author Michael Hartney takes a nuanced and data-driven look at how teachers' unions became the political powerhouses they are today, how they affect education policies, and how they impact students. Far from another diatribe, Hartney gives a solid foundation to actually understanding how teachers' unions work and how they got where they are. Michael Hartney is an assistant professor at Boston College, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Michael, welcome to the report card. Thanks, Nat. It's great to be here. All right. So, Michael, let's get this right out of the way. Do you hate teachers' unions? No. In fact, if you follow my Twitter feed, and uh, there's very few tweets, I'm not an active tweeter, but... um, I recently retweeted something that uh, education journalist Mike Antonucci, who covers the unions, uh, tweeted out that Randy Weingarten is, in fact, not the worst person in the world, that she's really in the business of um, defending her members' interests. And that oftentimes puts her at odds with folks in the education reform community. But no, uh, I don't I don't claim that they're the boogeyman. Right. So I asked that question just to get this out of the way, because a lot of listeners are going to first jump to, well, whose side are they on? So let me ask you a less charged question. Why do you think that it's worth caring about teachers' unions and how might American education look different if we didn't have the unions we have today? Well, I think it's important to care for two reasons. One is political in nature, and that is the simple fact that they're the most organized uh, and active year in and year out. It doesn't mean they win every time and everywhere, um, but they're the consistently most politically active and organized pressure group in education politics. So because of that, they're going to have influence on the types of education policies that are adopted uh, and the types that are not adopted and not debated. The second reason um, relates more to their role in representing teachers, and that is that no matter what sort of education reform you're talking about, At the end of the day, we're going to have to rely on educators to implement those policies in the classroom. And the simple fact is uh, that if educators are strongly resistant to the particular set of reforms that either the federal government's pushing, states are pushing, or a local district is pushing, it's going to be really hard to have those policies implemented with any fidelity, whether you agree with them or not. So I think there's a practical reason to care. And then there's the political uh, elephant in the room. So they're just an unavoidable step on the path to education policy change or just education delivery. Hey, let's get some of the basics out of the way. How big are teachers unions? I mean, just how do we conceive of the size of these interest groups? Yeah, I almost gave up uh, and quit the book project when I realized that just getting a simple number of how many members there are is pretty tricky. I figured if if that's hard, everything else is going to be infinitely much harder. Um, But we have two major unions in the United States, uh, teachers unions, the National Education Association which is the largest, in fact, the largest union of public employees in all of North America. 
and then the smaller American Federation for Teachers. But it's not that small, though. It's a little trickier uh, to figure out exactly how many members they have because the AFT doesn't only organize teachers. They organize other types of workers. Um, but the NEA has historically clicked in over the last couple decades at uh, either a little under a little over three million uh, members uh, and the AFT considerably smaller um, maybe a third or even less than a third of that uh, is principally located or organizes teachers in large urban school districts. So your Chicago's, uh, New York City. So they're really important, but they're geographically much more constrained than the NEA, which ha represents uh, or, or has members in all 50 states. So maybe a tougher question, what percentage of public school teachers belong to a union? Historically, that number, I'd say in the post-Nation uh, at Risk era, post-1980, has hovered uh, between 60 and 70 percent, depending on what you're putting in there as a denominator. It's a little tricky because uh, the question of do we pull teachers out, um, because the, the unions will allow school support staff, paraprofessionals to join the union, but they're not always full-time active members paying the same dues as teachers. But it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 percent. Okay, so this is a really big group. How would you describe the existing research on teachers' unions? I mean, is it overbaked? Is it undertreated? Is it overslanted? Give me the lay of the land. Yeah, even a couple, a decade and a half ago, Education Week had a story that that sort of said it's remarkable that there's really a lack of large study treatments of teachers' unions. It's not that there are none, um, but the reason I think that we don't see a lot of research on the unions uh, is for a couple of reasons. One is that schools of education just don't tend to study the politics of education in the way that a disciplined trained political scientist would, treating them simply as interest groups in the political universe. Um, and so there's just not a lot of resources committed in schools of education, and that's where um, the subject matter would be of interest. And then in departments of political science, where scholars have the tools to actually you know, study these questions because they think about interest groups for a living, um, the politics of education is kind of, um, until recently, I would say, been on uh, on the outskirts of the discipline. And that's partly because um, teachers unions are principally active in the United States due to our uh, federalist education system at the state and local level. And uh, there's a great book out recently from Sarah Anzia, a professor uh, at UC Berkeley, where she makes the point that political scientists who study interest groups tend to focus on interest groups in Washington, D.C. And because of that, teachers unions have gotten short shrift in the political science world as well, since they're more active at the at the local levels. We'll definitely get to that local sort of national. Yeah. Sport. I have a lot of questions about, well, what's this like for teachers, right? Like teachers in a union, how does their treatment differ from teachers who are not unionized? But I'm going to actually kind of put those questions on the shelf because I really want to get to the focus on teachers unions as a political force. Let's go back to the beginning for a second here. We didn't always have teachers unions. So give us the sort of origin story. When did the unions that we kind of know today really begin and when did they become powerful? Right. So the National Education Association goes back a very long time. I mean, we we're talking to the 1800s, but until the 1960s, it was essentially an education lobby, if you will. It was controlled by school administrators, um, nearly all male, uh, the teaching force heavily female, um, as it remains today, but even more so at that time. 
And um, to the extent that the NEA lobbied on the behalf of education issues, it, it really only lobbied asking for more educational resources. It wasn't in the business of singularly uh, lobbying on the behalf of teachers' occupational interests. And that all changed, I argue, um, and, and others have made this argument, but I think it's important to sort of point out that I think the conventional wisdom that's been out there for a long time is that suddenly in the 1960s, teachers got militant. Uh, the workforce got a little more male and teacher unionization was just, you know, something where its time had come. It's this story of solidarity and a bottom up movement of labor. And I don't reject that 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 didn't happen at all. But what I argue is that the reason teachers unions emerged as a force really in the 1970s is because state governments passed mandatory collective public sector collective bargaining laws, which allowed teachers to get organized and have a legal right to bargain collectively over their wages, uh, benefits and working conditions with their local school district governments. Because prior to states, Wisconsin being the first in 1959, over the next 20 years, some 30 states adopted these mandatory bargaining laws applied to teachers. I should say they also did them for cops and firefighters and, and other state and local workers. But the status quo before of that um, was we only had one labor law in the United States, and it was the National Labor Relations Act, which applied narrowly to private sector workers, not state and local workers. Courts said that those workers really um, belong to the states and localities where they exist in terms of negotiating um, their their contracts. So this was a watershed moment that came about between 1960 and 1980, and it's really the driving force that enabled teachers to get unionized. So let me drill down on this a little bit. The book is called How Policies Make Interest Groups, which is sort of an inversion of the phrase that we might expect, right? And this is one of the policies that is key here. And not everybody is familiar with collective bargaining. So just like lay this down a little bit more. How does this work to make teachers unions particularly powerful? So just first of all, what's a collective bargaining agreement? Uh, how's that work? It means that you work in an organization where your employer or management has to sit down with some representative of the employees uh, and come to an agreement over what your salary, uh, your benefits and your working conditions will look like. And membership, that is employees who are members of the labor organization, um, actually play a role in either voting up or down whether they are in favor of that contract, sending their union representative back to the negotiating table. Obviously, in education, that would be a negotiating table with a representative from the school board or the administration, and they ink out that deal. So it's really about giving employees a seat at the table in negotiating the contract um, under which they will work. But this this sort of arrangement, hey, now we're going to do collective bargaining, empowers somebody to negotiate it away. I mean, it creates a position of power and that creates an opportunity for teachers unions to become politically powerful in a way that without it, they'd have to kind of scrabble into existence. Is that correct? Yes. So I just simply described the um, kind of the nuts and bolts of the collective bargaining process. But the wrinkle that that I sort of um, propose in the book is that even though um, and I should say, um, you asked a little bit earlier about who's researching this stuff. Um, at the outset, economists were interested in this because it dealt quite obviously with questions of uh, labor policies and collective bargaining and, and unionization, whether that would impact the costs of government. How does that influence 
um, how much employees are going to be paid, what benefits and pensions are going to look like. Um, but the wrinkle that I'm proposing in the book is that while unionization, we have good reasons to think that unionization would change that balance of power between labor and management, it also played a role with what you're getting at in your question here in helping teachers unions solve their collective action problems as a political entity in terms of simply or having teachers be an organized force that the union has an easier and cheaper time reaching out to and trying to mobilize them to participate in politics, not just the collective bargaining process. So it's it's sort of a two bites at the apple sort of thing. It had an impact on their ability to negotiate for wages, but it also had an ability um, to enhance the power of their interest groups locally, state, and nationally. We can get into all of that, of course. So this kind of gets at two parts of this question. How did they get so big? And then a separate question of, well, how did they get so politically powerful, which you could get large without being politically powerful. But this is a progression to size. You create a drive for membership and then also a drive to turn that membership into something that is actually politically powerful. Right. And and so, um, as I say in the book, you know, all interest groups really want they want four things. I think in the book, I say three, but we'll, let's combine a couple chapters here. They want members. Um, they need money. And they also need maintenance. And what that refers to is they need members and money to flow into the organization year after year. They have to maintain those resources. And they also want to be able to mobilize uh, their members to engage in political advocacy when necessary to defend and protect the benefits they win through lobbying. So they want all four of those things. And what public sector collective bargaining did was it helped lower the costs facing teachers unions in terms of being able to obtain those things. And there are all sorts of examples I give in the book, and, and we can talk about that. Well, there's some examples, I think, that may be kind of particular or that listeners might not even realize that enable teachers unions to stay organized and to do that maintenance. So just give us some of those examples that people might not realize that actually are pretty important about using membership as political power. Right. Well, let's start just first with his, historically what was probably the most important one, which is the way in which strong labor laws uh, enabled teachers unions to recruit more members because more members leads to more money. And and that is the fact that in after states began passing these uh, mandatory barring laws, I'll use Michigan as an example. So Michigan passes its law, I believe, 1965. And um, in the aftermath, local school district governments agree to contracts with their local teachers union that says explicitly, if you have some teachers in the district that don't want to pay uh, any dues to the union and don't want to be a member, um, we're going to put in the contract that they nevertheless have to support the union financially. Eventually, this gets litigated. And in 1977, the Supreme Court says this is kosher. We'll allow um, uh, unions to negotiate these provisions to uh, provide an incentive for uh, teachers who are not in the union to join the union. And, and that's a whole big debate. Um, just to bookend it, the U.S. Supreme Court shut that practice down, but they didn't do it for four, until 40 years later in 2018 in the, in the well-known Janus decision. But the point is very simple here, that when public sector labor laws were being adopted, this created um, a choice for teachers that was very easy. Um, if you didn't join the union, you were going to still lose 70 to 75% of what union dues would be in your paycheck. You had no choice. But if you did join the union, you could vote in union elections. You could get some of the selective benefits they offer. So it was a real recruiting tool that helped union membership skyrocket. And I should note, like, 
there's a lot of historical evidence for that. Um, Bob Putnam's famous book, Bowling Alone, for example, charted how membership in occupational associations like a teacher's group, but he looked at the American Medical Association, the American Bar Association, lawyers and doctors were leaving those organizations in droves. This was sort of the end of the civic moment. And at that same time, because of these collective bargaining laws, I argue, you see the opposite for teachers unions. They're the outlier. They're able to grow and maintain that 60 to 70 percent of membership that we talked about earlier uh, for the rest of the modern education reform movement. A second example that would be less well known, perhaps, um, and we're and it's very relevant uh, to what's going on politically right now. Um, it's a part of a piece of legislation that Governor Ron DeSantis has put on the table this legislative cycle in Florida, and it's the. Uh, the issue of school districts, payroll offices. Now I'm getting really boring on you. payroll deduction. Uh, so when a teacher gets their paycheck, they're able to sign a provision that says I'm a union member and I want my PAC contribution, my political action money that I'm sending to the union. And I want my dues automatically deducted out of my paycheck. And a lot of states actually enacted laws that made that the default position that all school district governments had to do that for the union. And that's a very big benefit if you're trying to engage in political organization because it keeps um, political money and dues money flowing into your organization year after year. We all know what it's like if we've engaged in a philanthropic activity going around knocking on doors at the workplace asking folks to cough up money for a good cause. It's really hard to get them to do it. I don't have my checkbook today. I forgot. I'll get you next time. Well, this took care of that problem for teachers unions, and it was a policy that was enacted by governments. And so this basically means that my members don't have to write a check every month to pay their dues. Instead, we'll take it out of their paycheck. So this kind of works like with Netflix. You may forget to watch Netflix for a while, but they're going to keep charging your subscription. And the target that you say DeSantis is coming up with is, hey, you can pay your dues if you want to, but you're going to actually have to send the check. And that difference can be huge. Right. And and this is where things get controversial because people say if you want to roll back those sort of provisions, you're anti-union. And the other side makes the point that, look, you know. We don't do that for any other group stakeholders in education. If there's a parent group that's trying to advocate for charter schools in a district, uh, just because you're a parent, we aren't automatically going to deduct, uh, y- you know, we're not going to set up a fund for you and make it easy to collect money so you can lobby uh, for a different school board. The unions uniquely and alone have had these benefits over the decades. Michael, in the book, you talk about the difference in unions' political power and effectiveness Kind of depends on whether they're playing offense or defense. Why? Exactly. Um, Because this is partly an issue of where the political contestation happens. So when the unions are on offense, we're typically thinking about them um, lobbying for more resources for education, in particular, more resources targeted at teacher salaries, pensions, um, maybe smaller class sizes, those sorts of things. And at the end of the day, um, you know, as as we've known going back 50 years of research, local governments are fiscally constrained. They can't print more money. At some point, there's simply no more money to give. And what that means is invariably when unions are pushing for more resources, they have to go up the political food chain. They're going to either go to the state government and try to tap state revenues, or they're going to ask the federal government. I mean, we're seeing right now, I think, a push from Bernie Sanders. Kamala Harris had a similar push when she was running for president to have the federal government come in and start spending federal revenue to subsidize and raise teacher salaries. And setting aside whether that's a good idea or not, the simple reality is that as the unions 
have to move um, levels up from uh, sort of a local school district where 10% of voters participate in school board elections, all the way up to lobbying in Washington, D.C., where there are a lot of other interest groups, taxpayer advocacy groups, conservative groups that are going to fight those things. The unions are simply not going to be able to run the table and do as well. That's one reason why when they're on offense, I'd say they have modest, they have serious influence, but it's much more modest influence. Um, the other reason is the simple nature of American politics that applies to every group um, in a federalist system. And education is sort of the archetype of this. It's the most federalist uh, sort of governance setup that you could have. Um, if you're the reformer trying to change the status quo, you have to run the table at each point in the process. I mean, this is more than just a bill becomes a law stuff. Yes, you have to get through a bicameral legislature, get an executive to sign it. It's got to be held up by the courts. But along the way, right, you've got to get through committee meetings. Like a literally one legislative person can quash that. So that makes the unions just like anyone else when they're trying to play offense. But on defense, where they're trying to block education reforms that they disagree, it makes them tremendously powerful because all they have to do is win at one veto point along the way. If they can get one legislative member to kill it, they're going to win. And as you push those debates down, especially to the state and local levels and on issues that we might call a little bit um, arcane and not on the radar of the public, things like um, teacher licensure, teacher evaluation, like that had its moment in the 2010s. But this is not an issue that rank and file parents are turning out for at school board means. It means that teachers unions are going to have an advantage um, when they're trying to block radical reforms on those fronts. So let's talk about these levels a little bit more. We talk about union influence at the state level. Would you say teachers unions generally are sort of, we should think about them as being treated the same across states or are teachers unions in one state going to get a totally different treatment than they might in another? Sure. I mean, no, we can't say that the, the Teachers Association in South Carolina is as powerful as the um, California Teachers Association. I, I wouldn't suggest that. But I do think that sometimes on more narrow education issues, historically, perhaps not in this hyper moment of partisan polarization where, you know, if you're a Republican legislator in South Carolina, you don't want to get caught voting with the Teachers Association too often. I think that's a more recent dynamic. But historically, if you're talking about a narrow education issue, it's not just like how powerful are you and the South Carolina Education Association isn't that powerful. Uh, the Virginia Education Association is a little more powerful, but it's not California. But those groups aren't competing on a lot of issues with the chambers of commerce of the world or other you know, big influential uh, donors. They're simply competing with groups that are interested in those more narrow education issues. And as that pool gets smaller, it doesn't take a lot of money and membership advocacy to still be a pretty big player in that debate, to still get invited um, to testify or have your voice at the table on these issues. So certainly not equal across states, um, but on education issues at the state level, they tend to be, you know, um, always in the top handful. So it seems if I can repeat back what I've heard, look, teachers unions aren't necessarily the most powerful in the state. But when it comes to education issues among the groups that are trying to bring influence to bear, they typically are going to outweigh the other ones who can bring influence to bear because on education issues specifically, teachers unions are sort of the 800-pound gorilla. Yes. Not to make either the teachers union look bad by comparing them to a gorilla, or in other listeners' eyes, 
make gorillas look bad by comparing them to teachers unions. So historically, teachers unions have grown, their influence has grown. Should we think about this like, well, there's just a monotonic influence in teacher power and teacher influence, or has it ebbed and flowed over time? Timing and sequence is really what you're asking about here. And it's really essential to understand how that works when talking about uh, the role that teachers unions have played historically in influencing uh, the tone and direction of American education. So the first thing that's important to realize is that teachers unions rose to power ahead of the modern education reform movement. So they ensconced their power in the 60s and particularly the 70s, and we don't get a nation at risk until 1983. And that's really important, I argue, because it means that teachers unions had a head start. They figured out how to dominate local school board elections. They figured out how to build their lobbying uh, entities in state capitals before anyone was even thinking about education reform on a national scale. Um, so so for you know a couple of decades there, the reform movement you know did its thing. Um, but it, it was limited in some ways because it was facing off against a teacher's union. Um, this isn't me just saying this, by the way, you know, in the book, I quote uh, from an editorial piece in the New York Times uh, talking about the teacher union's response in the late 80s, or early 90s to a nation at risk. And they said, look, they were the group out there with significant power to veto education reform proposals. Um, but the other thing that's worth adding here on timing and sequence is that the unions have had moments of difficulty, too. And arguably, the moment of difficulty for them um, uh, that was most acute uh, came under Barack Obama's presidency. And that's no accident because President Obama was a Democrat who nonetheless came out in favor of charter schools. Um, he was also an advocate of reforming um, teacher policies around pay and evaluation, accountability. Um, and this all came about at this moment that was very politically difficult for teachers unions. It was the rise of the Tea Party, the austerity that came about because of the Great Recession. Uh, I mean, and also in the popular culture, you had uh, documentaries like Waiting for Superman. You had Michelle Rhee doing her thing in Washington, D.C. So that was a moment where the teachers unions were very much under attack. Um, we can argue about, you know, how much did that really lead to major losses? But I will say this. It does ebb and flow. I mean, by um, the Trump presidency, the Democrats reunited in support of teachers unions, largely in opposition to Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos. Um, and with the 2018 Janus decision, uh, again, sort of Democrats came home to labor. Um, and now we're sort of back to kind of a status quo um, that we had before. So let's talk a little bit about that Janus decision. I did some work on that because I just thought, man, this is the economic linchpin of teachers union power. So let me sort of explain my logic here. Look, Janus was a question of, hey, can we require folks who are not part of the union to pay this large percentage of union dues, whether or not? So basically, the logic there in the, the law was, look, the union represents them, whether they're members of the unions or not. They have to do this service to teachers who then get the advantage of higher pay and, and representation at the bargaining table. So they should have to pay this portion. Of course, the alternative view is, well, if they have to pay 70%, they might as well pay the marginal 30% because then they get representation and some sort of insurance from the union, uh, ability to vote and have influence and so forth. Janus was the decision that said, look, you can't require these partial payments. So this takes away some of the insulation that unions enjoy that props up their membership. And the idea would be, well, once you do that, membership may actually fall precipitously. So, Michael, 
Did membership fall precipitously? No, it did not. Um, it fell in f- a few states, and it has fallen, okay? Um, but in no way has it followed kind of the pattern of uh, what advocates of these agency fees said would be what happened to their unions if the court ruled the way that it did. Um, let me just mention a couple states. Uh, Wisconsin has had huge drops. I want to say they've lost half their members. Uh, Michigan's had huge drops. But if you actually dig beneath the surface there, a lot of what was going on were drops that happened because of other anti-labor laws passed under Scott Walker in particular in Wisconsin. But in your typical state, no, um, we haven't seen a mass exodus. And I think um, we can only speculate to some degree, um, but I think there are some obvious candidates for why we've seen things uh, unfold the way that they've unfolded. And one is... um, uh, has to do with a generational effect. So I think it's very different when you're talking about the calculus that a new teacher hired into a district makes when they now go into um, a state uh, where there's a very active teachers union that's historically had high membership rates. Because say, you know, say you're a new teacher hired in California. You come in, maybe your starting salary is 45 or 50,000, and HR tells you, oh, and if you make this deduction, you're going to be $1,000 lighter in the pocket. Well, that looks like a lot um, to go without. Um, but it's a quite a different calculus if you're a 15-year veteran teacher and you've always been getting paychecks that are lighter by that $1,000. And add to that sort of the defiance of, wait a minute, uh, the Supreme Court is coming in and telling me, you know, or there are right-wing groups pressuring me to leave my union. Maybe some of them who have political problems with the union will... Um, take the option to leave. And I think that's happened. But a lot of them will probably just say, you know, they'll shrug their shoulders and they'll continue on to be a member. And some will be um, quite enthusiastic about that. And others are more like, you know, you said the Netflix thing. I use the gym example. They're like, oh, maybe I'll go next month, right? Like, it's just sort of out of habit. So I think that's why we haven't seen a massive exodus. But what I'm interested in over the long term is part of what you said about the economic logic of this is that it would suggest that unions are going to, going forward, have to be a lot more sensitive to what their median member cares about because they know that members can leave if they want to leave. And so what surprises me a little bit is that, you know, take Randy Weingarten on the steps of the Capitol the other day. To the extent that unions move away from simply the bread and butter issues of their members, like very narrowly focusing on negotiating a more generous salary in the district, and they kind of start opining on all of the progressive political agenda, it would seem obvious that any teachers who are either center or right of center would be much less likely to continue to pay their union dues. So we might want to look down the road um, to the states that... uh, um, had right to work laws versus those that didn't before Janice came as sort of a natural experiment to see is the tone of what the unions are offering in states changed at all? If the unions that have lost agency fees now feel pressure to really make sure they keep all their members, are they going to be more likely to focus narrowly on those bread and butter issues and steer clear of politically controversial topics? Yeah, there's a lot of appeal in that argument. I mean, pre-Janus, you have a little bit of security if you're a labor leader where you can, I don't know if this is fair or not. You tell me if it's not fair, where you can sort of exert power over your members. 
as opposed to exert the power of your members. But if you don't have a lock on the membership in the same way that you did, well, it seems like, wow, we better circumscribe what we're doing a little bit to make sure that we're not alienating parts of our membership. And that could change behavior of teachers unions over time. Although, as you're saying, at least using Randy Weingarten as a exemplar, that may not be something that she appears, at least right, she's not wearing on her sleeve those concerns in the way we might think to be the case. Yeah. And part of this goes to, I think there's a second book to be written. I'm not sure I'm the one to do it, but um, for anyone, for any graduate students that might be listening, we really need uh, a deep study on the internal dynamics of teachers unions organizationally. I mean, Terry Moe's great book, Special Interest, got at that a little bit, but that that data was from the early 2000s. And certainly politics has changed a lot in the last few decades. Um, and I would point out here that part of the issue about that um, those internal dynamics is the degree to which teachers or even member, well, it would have to be members, but members participate in the election for their own leadership. So LA Unified just had a election. They reelected the um, uh, the incumbent uh, or, or the incumbent's uh, wing of the of the union, but turnout was less than 30%. And that tends to vary across states. I think I saw in Chicago, they also had a recent union election um, and 16,000 teachers voted. And I think the city has about 21 or 22,000 teachers. So turnout varies really remarkably across districts. And if you're talking about a district that has low turnout, it may be the case that the unions talk about that they represent teachers, but they may not be representing the the median teacher if that teacher is not participating in those elections. But we don't have a lot of good evidence about that. I can tell you in New York uh, City, as a longstanding problem has been that retirees dominate those elections. They're actually the median voter in a New York City uh, teacher union election is a retiree. So it's not a surprise why pensions are always such a big issue. Now that that is hilarious. Let me ask you some pointed questions. There's just sort of some popular discourse about teachers unions. There's some on the left. It's going to be markedly different. I would just venture to guess. I don't have evidence for this at hand, but I'm going to guess that that's different from the scuttlebutt on teachers unions coming from the right. What are some things that you can say, you know what, look, this is just a mischaracterization. What are the egregious mischaracterizations of teachers unions that you see pop up frequently? Well, I mean, the idea that they're responsible for everything that ails American public education. I mean, I I don't see it's probably because I clean out my Twitter feed regularly, but I don't see a lot of people saying that. But I know some people do. They want to pin everything that's wrong with public education on teachers unions. I think that's way overblown. Um, I also think it's overblown uh, when folks try, I understand there's a very technical um, debate uh, among economists about whether teachers are underpaid or overpaid. But I also think that a lot of the rhetoric that's sometimes thrown at teachers uh, and teachers unions about, well, you're really overpaid, you work nine months. I think that's way overblown because the simple reality is that if you look at teacher salaries since the Great Recession after factoring in inflation, they're pretty stagnant, not everywhere, but they certainly haven't gone up dramatically. There's a lot of reasons for that. We can talk about you know, benefits and also um, the fact that we've just been hiring a lot of bodies and keeping class sizes low rather than investing more in teacher quality. We've done teacher quantity. But I think those are two areas where the rhetoric gets a little heated um, and, and personal and sort of tries to paint 
teachers and their unions just as uh, greedy entities that are the cause of what uh, of what ails American education from A to Z. All right, Michael, we're going to take a pause here. We have a section on the report card called Grade It. Are you game? Yes, let's do it. All right, here we go. The political effectiveness of the National Rifle Association. B. They're not what they once were because they're dealing with some internal strife uh, that came about from some of that financial malfeasance that was well covered by the New Yorker. Uh, but they're firmly ensconced in the political right, and they're an important interest group, and their members vote on that issue. All right. The political effectiveness or the just the, the straight up effectiveness of Randy Weingarten, head of the AFT. A. Randy's great at going out and talking, um, I should say, uh, using the bully pulpit at a national level to say things that are um, maybe where the median reader, not of the New York Times, but sort of like, you know, she paints things with a very moderate brush until a day ago. Um, but the real secret sauce there is that she's not the one steering control of her locals. So she can go out and say, I was on the front lines fighting to reopen schools during the pandemic. Well, the affiliates in Chicago and LA and across the country were doing the complete opposite. So she's a very um, capable political tactician. But why, uh, look, why Randy Weingarten with the name recognition when Becky Pringle, you know, most people haven't even heard of her. I mean, there's some historical element to that. Al Shanker was kind of the most famous union leader. Um, the AFT is different. Uh, he was the president of the UFT. I mean, there's this pipeline typically from the presidency of the New York City Teachers Union up through that state to the position of AFT president. And one key difference is the AFT leader oftentimes can make a brand because they don't have term limits the same way that the NEA leaders. So you get a new NEA leader every couple of years. They don't have long enough to to get that name recognition the same way. Aha, term limits. Next grade, off-cycle elections. F. I mean, this is something where you have conservatives and liberals agreeing. I mean, there's like none of that. So why not do it? It will increase turnout, which uh, progressives love, uh, but it will um, diminish the extent to which the electorate is dominated by public employees in both municipal elections and in school board elections. Who doesn't like higher turnout? Teacher performance pay. I'm going to give it a B. It's just not been implemented well. And that's part because of opposition from educators. But I think the problem is we've gone too small, right? Don't, offering 2500 bucks or $5,000 is just too little. We need to start thinking of the profession as, you have a chance to bonus 20, 30, 40% to not so much encourage current teachers to work harder. I never, I don't like that characterization of merit pay, but to make the profession more attractive for people who want to be judged based on their effectiveness. Grad student unionization. F. I went to graduate school in South Bend, Indiana. I give sympathy to no one. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the effectiveness of climate change protesters. F. 
this is a high-level international political issue that's going to have to be solved uh, principally with China, India, and these other countries. And, you know, ruining a painting in some chic uh, art gallery isn't going to move the needle there. Massachusetts Public Schools. I'd say a B. Um, A lot of our historically well-regarded districts, I'm thinking of Newton and Brookline where I live, really, um, how can I say this uh, nicely? Um, They did not color themselves in distinction during the pandemic. Schools were closed the entire year. They've they've lost uh, enrollment. Um, But historically, you know, coming out of the 90 reforms, the state's been fairly well managed uh, due to a series of good governors, um, good state superintendents. So I think it still punches above its weight. All right. You you brought it up, so I'm going to ask it. The school reopening timeline during the pandemic. F minus. Um, I mean, look, there was a reasonable debate in certain pockets of the country about whether it was right to open in the fall of 2020. I mean, I come down on the side that they should have opened. But by the time that vaccines were rolling, we're talking February, March, even in April, the fact that a majority of schools in large urban blue communities were still not open for in-person learning fully is just not grounded in science. It's grounded in political science. All right, that's a wrap for Graded. Let me ask you about the effectiveness of teachers. You've done some research and put it in the book, sort of trying to quantitatively get at, hey, do teachers unions seem to actually improve educational outcomes? I know that this is hard. So let me just state from the the outset, not an easy question to answer. Nonetheless, answer it. Okay. So um, in that chapter, I, I have sort of a theoretical argument, and then I, I kind of do a, a look at what the literature has shown, um, and, and I do my own analysis as well, which by no means is perfect, and, and I don't, I say in the book, you know, it, it's a stab at this. But I think the theoretical argument, honestly, is much more important than the empirics here, and that is that I, I, I say, look, the issue, and I lead the chapter off with a quotation from a former NEA president who says forthrightly, There have been times where our members' interests as employees have clashed with what's good for students. And too often, we've probably gone down the path of doing what a union does, which is defend our members' occupational interests. And this is really the key question at the heart of all of this, uh, the union effects literature, which is to what degree do students' interests overlap with teachers' interests? Is Randy Weingarten right when she says what's good for teachers is what's good for students? And folks come at this from very different perspectives. Um, And I think the issue is as follows, that the simple fact is that, look, if you were training, I like this thought experiment. If you were training for a marathon and you went to the gym and you did everything you could do to perform well in that marathon, but the owner of the gym had taken, let's say, 25% of the machines out of circulation, said they're too expensive, our, our fitness instructors don't like to use them because they find that it's more work for them. For whatever reason, we're not going to give you access to 25% of the tools in the toolbox to get geared up for your marathon. And someone else down the road was not encumbered by that at all. 
and could take advantage of every possible training strategy under the sun. Nobody would say that's a good way to go about giving your best performance. And I liken that to the role that teachers unions have played in American education. They're right. Teachers unions are not wrong that there are places where politicians do want to underinvest in education, where they're skimping. I'm not saying they're not right about that in pockets. But when you do get an education reformer who takes power and wants to try reforms, wants to literally try anything under the sun to see if they can move the needle, I mean, turning around low-performing schools is difficult, not well-understood work. The notion that you would take any possible reforms off the table simply because one interest group objects to them for self-interested reasons, to me, is sort of baseline evidence that unions are, under certain conditions, going to be an obstacle to uh, improving student achievement as much as possible. Now, empirically, that question is very difficult to get at, and we can talk about some of the studies if you'd like to. Well, I was just going to bring up the fact that earlier we talked about the differential strength of unions when they're playing defense and offense. And what you're talking about aligns clearly with that, where, hey, if there are some defensive moves that unions can do, that may have a sort of disproportionate effect on these outcomes. And this is really kind of where their core political strength may lie. Am I getting that right? Exactly. And I think the best evidence of that is what Terry Moe shows in his book on Hurricane Katrina, that, look, I mean, the folks who oversaw that radical restructuring, which, you know, there's a, a wide group of people who agree that the reforms had a positive effect on student achievement. I mean, you know, I, I don't necessarily think uh, economist at Tulane, Doug Harris and Terry Moe necessarily agree on everything about education reform under the sun, but they both agree that New Orleans dramatically moved the needle forward in terms of student achievement. Well, Terry rightly points out that it was largely the same cast of characters that existed before the storm. And after the storm, in terms of coming up with sort of the policy solutions, what New Orleans was going to do, the only difference was after the storm, you were unencumbered by establishment interest group power. The unions weren't going to have a veto over that choice-based system that they put into place. I mean, that's just one example. We could look at Washington, D.C. under Michelle Rhee. We could look at Newark, New Jersey, where the unions fought against uh, Cory Booker and Chris Christie's efforts to reform. I mean, I think Zuckerberg spent like 50 million or 100 million on a single teachers union contract. So I, I think that, yes, when they want to play the role of blocking reforms, if those reforms, not all of them would, of course, but for the ones that would lead to better student outcomes, I mean, that's where I add up uh, the calculus that they can be um, an obstacle to improving achievement. But as far as like a, a large bore statistical analysis where the bottom line says, oh, teachers unions are a huge boon to student outcomes or they're the major flaw. They're really dragging student outcomes down. We're a pretty good distance away from being able to say that with any definition. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it's I mean, it's not only, but it, it's partly driven by the fact that Remember, when teachers unions got organized, these changes happened in the late 60s and the 1970s. We weren't measuring student achievement. We didn't have all the measures of student achievement back then at the state district, you know, reported the way that they are today. So it's unfortunate because we can't really do kind of the conventional difference in difference analysis or a very careful causal study of like what actually happened right after unionization occurred. Uh, on uh, rich 
measure rich outcome measures of test scores that are comparable. This is the pre-NCLB world where we weren't testing all kids. Um, so that's a big limiting factor. I will say, this is not me speaking, but I will say that education uh, researcher and economist Catherine Strunk and Josh Cohen at Michigan State University, um, who I think are pretty, um, you know, historically over the years, their scholarship has been regarded as it's not ideological in nature. Um, their summary can, um, summary analysis of the literature on teacher union effects in 2015 said some of the early studies that were not as sophisticated, not as rigorous, given the econometric techniques at the time, concluded that unions had either a, a no effect or maybe a, a small positive effect on student achievement. They revisited that and they said, look, the more rigorous studies that have been done in the intervening years on balance show slightly negative effects. Um, so I think that, you know, this story is not over, uh, by any long stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's not accurate to say that the research literature, as is often repeated, I mean, what you get in news clips is, well, you know, unionized states do better on the NAEP or countries that have unionized teachers do better than the United States. And those comparisons just aren't apples to apples. The more rigorous studies show a slightly negative effect. How are teachers unions faring in 2023? Well, I think they'd like to run against Donald Trump. Um, I think they're terrified of Ron DeSantis and they should be because um, DeSantis has shown that uh, if conservative political executives get involved in school board races simply with endorsements, they can, they can literally take, I mean, I looked at this empirically, I'm not just pulling these numbers out of a hat, uh, DeSantis endorsed uh, 30 school board candidates, and in 19 races, the unions endorsed a different candidate. I mean, they didn't endorse any of the same candidates, but there were 19 elections where they went head to head, and the union won just four times. And in those same districts over the last decade, the union, when they made an endorsement, won 70% of the time. So um, I think that, uh, especially in red states, um, they're going to continue to lose power. I think they're going to be okay in places like New York and California. Um, but they're certainly going to have a great deal of interest in the next presidential election, uh, because whoever it is on the GOP side, I definitely expect them to make education a big issue. You know, this is a weird question to ask, but I think it's actually particularly appropriate about, you know, the organization of parents in the book. You say that parents have typically had less power than teachers unions because they just really haven't had political organization. How much is that changing? I mean, certainly part of this, there's a political tilt because you have a lot of these parent organization groups that are more culturally loaded in the issues that they bear. But still, what do you make of them as a political force? It's going to be a question of whether they can keep up the momentum as they shift from having organized around COVID school closures to now other issues. I mean, and after the school closures, as schools reopen, you know, they could they could get in on debates over masks and vaccine mandates. But eventually those issues are going to move uh, to the periphery. And if they're going to keep up their momentum, if they're going to have parents enthused about being involved, they're going to have to have other issues. And it's a little bit of a weird dynamic. Um, because to the extent that they're going to go all in in favor of school choice, that kind of has a demobilizing effect in terms of getting involved politically in the public schools or, or potentially could because you're sort of like encouraging parents to leave the public system, which would then reduce their interest in showing up at public school board meetings potentially. 
uh, or trying to electioneer a parent-friendly school board candidate. Um, I will say this, though, that in the book I report on uh, like a dozen surveys nearly going back to the early 2000s of school board members and school board members themselves uniformly and consistently reported that teacher, the local teachers union was year in and year out the most politically active group in their district. Parents were usually the second, but parents never outpaced teachers unions. I just wrapped up a survey of school board members like a month and a half ago. And, you know, we have to be careful about this because the sample of participants who decided to get excited about participating in a survey of school board members in 2023 might look different than what it looked like over the previous years. But I will say that parents emerged this time slightly above teachers unions, which is a big change in the sort of research that exists on these questions of who's active in local school districts. So parents may be having a moment. The question is, can they sustain it? Let me ask you briefly, should people be careful when they look at these groups who say, well, you know, we represent parents. And, you know, we also say, well, do teachers unions actually represent teachers? I mean, is there a weird valence here about who's representing what when it comes to these parents groups? Yeah, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, um, but it's certainly the case that there are lots of adults that don't even have children in the schools that are very interested in issues related to education that they perceive as political, particularly politically right or, or, or blue or red. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that we see folks showing up at school board meetings defending parents' rights, many of them, I'm sure, are parents with kids in the schools, and they'll say that in their in their couple of minutes that they're given. But we also know of cases where there are just folks in the district who are angry about the way things are going politically, and they're using, um, you know, these parent groups through trying to sort of align themselves with them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fair to be cautious about that. Um, but but I also think that look, the historical record. I, I I discuss this in the book that you can go back and read Education Week articles in the '80s about the quote unquote rise of the new parents' unions. And, you know, I tried to follow up on these groups and a lot of times I went to their 990 pages and they were defunct a few years later. So that's one of the core messages of the book is that teachers unions aren't going to become extinct and defunct because there's a certain set of policies that will always keep them at the table. Parents are just doing this with pure enthusiasm right now. Um, so, you know, how long that enthusiasm can last is, is an open question. All right. So last question here. You got to it a little bit there, but I want to ask more clearly in both the midterm, maybe five, 10 years, but particularly over the long term, what are the prospects for teachers unions power politically and their staying power in the education space? So in blue states, they're going to remain very powerful um, if for no other reason, then they're such an important coalition group for the Democratic Party. And, you know, those are teachers are educated. They're willing to knock on doors. They're willing to make phone calls. And that's just too important for um, aspiring Democratic candidates uh, to give up um, and to not court. But I do think the unions face a more secular problem of decline. And it's not so much about losing members after Janus, because I think the issue for them is that enrollments going down, particularly in the large urban school systems where a disproportionate num number of their members are, 
presents a big problem because at some point, the chickens are going to come home to roost. You can't keep hiring staff and putting resources into buildings that have fewer students. And that's happening because of changes demographically, of course. It's happened because of COVID sort of expediting it. But it's also happened because a lot of parents vote with their feet and don't think those schools are serving their kids very well. So I think at some point, I mean, it's, it's almost like saying that markets will matter in a public system. But at some point, I think they will because, you know, we're not exactly in a fiscal period where there's a bunch of money sitting under a mattress for problems. And districts, many districts have gone all in with their federal COVID stimulus dollars. And if they've hired folks, they're going to have big issues on their hands when that money dries up, which it surely will. So I think that's the issue that's going to make unions challenged probably in the next half decade. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Michael Hartney. We'll include a link to Michael's book, How Policies Make Interest Groups, Government, Unions, and American Education, as well as some of Michael's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.